the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Well, good afternoon, and thanks for coming along. It is the 31st of January. It feels like it, too, doesn't it? It does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I woke up this morning, though, and it was sunny. Sunny was bright. And beautiful. Well, I it's love beautiful. that so Lovely. much. Yeah, but now, of course, the rest yeah. of the day, maybe around noon or so, it's fine, though. All is well. Is it fine? Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. That's good. We had uh, a guest here in the studio today. When guests arrive, often food stuff arrives. So somebody brought in, like, uh, apple strudels. They brought in a gigantic tray of uh, fresh fruit. Uh-huh. So uh, enjoying that. You know, I always welcome people in the studio for that reason. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. But I had mm-hmm. already eaten by that point, and so I was sad about it. Uh-huh. I see Lex, is, uh, she's got herself some fruit as well. It's just good. People to come in and say, we would just want to say hi. Years ago, there was a church in uh, the Carnegie area of Pittsburgh that mm-hmm. used to drop off pierogi oh. for us. What happened to Here that? Here was my favorite thing about it. It was lovely. Is that they would drop it off in a Tupperware container that didn't have a lid. It just had foil on it. Mm-hmm. And then they'd say, whenever you're done, just leave the container outside the door. It was like something heck? from... 1940s America. Manna from heaven is what I it loved was. it yeah. so much. Speaking of pierogies, yes. um, you and your wife are, are coming to dinner at our homestead this weekend. Now, this is a recreation of your Christmas Eve, celebration? Christmas Eve celebration. Uh-huh. And so uh, pierogi will be served. Excellent. Mm-hmm. And different varieties? Mm-hmm. We will have different varieties. Great. We'll have three different varieties on Saturday evening. Knowing that it's going to happen, mm-hmm. I will not eat anything on Saturday. Yeah, and I would not eat any starch between no, of now and then. Not. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Between now and then. I'm kidding. All right, well, it's Thursday. <laughs> yeah. No, it's Wednesday. Oh, it is Wednesday. Thank you for coming to the <laughs> ride home with John and Kathy. <laughs> it feels yeah. like, doesn't it feel like Thursday? I actually thought it was Thursday. I think, yeah. When I, yes, when Lexi's I did the top. shaking her head, yeah. too. When I did the top four, I actually thought it was Thursday well, anyway. this morning, so I can't pick on you so, too much. For happy that. Wednesday. Happy starch day. Come Coming up on the ride home today in the five o'clock hour uh, for singles. Is it okay to date multiple people at once? Mm. Mm. You ever do that? Oh, yeah. What? Multiple people at one time? Sure. Get out of here. Sure, I did. No. Yeah. That's so confusing. It was confusing. It was very confusing. All right. We'll talk about that with Lisa Anderson. Yeah. Um, Also, um, a place to stand. Now, this doesn't really mean anything, those words put together, but if you put them in context with the rest of the work that Kurt Thompson has done in Mm -hmm. his book called The Deepest Place, Suffering in the Formation of Hope, a place to stand is what you're looking for. Because when everything's falling apart in your life, uh, you just feel like you're trying to walk on ice and you just keep flailing and flailing and Give flailing. Give me some solid ground, yeah. please. So we're going to talk about how to find that solid ground at 510 and also how fasting diets may protect against Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. All right. Yep. Also, would you ever in any way, shape or form choose a patty melt over a burger? Oh, yes. Really? Yeah, of course. Don't you get burgered out? 
No. Because I don't have, oh, I don't that's have right. burgers. No. I mean, I kind of feel like, how many burgers have you eaten in your life? Yeah. Right? A lot. Versus how many patty melts. Mm-hmm. So it's a nice option, isn't it? None, I you don't never, like patty ever, melt. ever eat a patty melt. Like, no. Like if you say, Kathy, when's the last patty melt you had? Maybe when I was 15. What? No, they show up in our house fairly regularly. Do they? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What kind of patty? Um, what, what do you mean? Like, like well, a like tuna? what's it made out of? Tuna. Like okay. Tuna like a tuna salad okay. with uh, cheddar cheese, mostly open face. And it's hot? Yeah. Right. Under the broiler. It's very nice. It's refreshing. Okay. All right. I look forward we'll to that conversation. About that. Along with uh, the question, are you more empathetic than God? <laughs> the answer is no. All right. Okay. All that and more. But as we always get underway, the news stories. Kath, please give us the top four at four. John, I'm happy to reinforce to you that it is Wednesday. Thank you. <laughs> the 31st of January. Leading into Thursday. 2024. Number one. Meta Platform's Mark Zuckerberg's TikTok, Xiao Zichu, and other tech CEOs faced tough criticism today from senators who say that online risks for kids are growing and going largely in ignored by the social media platforms. The Wall Street Journal, John, highlighted persistent dangers to kids on social media platforms in recent years, including, and we've talked about each one of these articles that the journal put out, how Instagram's algorithms connect a vast network of pedophiles, how TikTok's algorithms serve teens' weight loss videos over and over again, uh, and a whole bunch of other concerning content. Anyway, uh, Zuckerberg faced tough questions from members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, probably is doing so even now. Um, but here's the big question. Internal meta documents show that top company officials at Meta asked Zuckerberg to invest in additional protections for kids on their platform, and the requests for those resources were not granted. Why is that? Well, we're going to find out. Maybe we'll find out today. Hopefully, we'll he's find a father. Out today. Yep. Anyway, you can read more about that at today's Wall Street Journal. Number two, the Justice Department announced today it has successfully disrupted an effort by Chinese government-sponsored hackers to target U.S. critical infrastructure networks using a malware that had hijacked hundreds of homes and small business routers. FBI Director Chris Wray called out China for its effort to target water treatment plants, our electrical grid, our oil and natural gas pipelines, and our transportation systems. These people. What? the heck. They are the enemy. The fear repeatedly expressed by U.S. officials is that China could use malware like this to disrupt Americans' daily lives or even impact a U.S. military response during a global crisis like a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Hmm. Read more about that at ABC News. Number three, French Interior Minister Gerald Darmanin said today that some 300,000 spectators will be able to attend the opening ceremony of the Paris Olympics, which is terrific, except that's only about half the size of what was originally planned. Mm. The giant show on the River Seine on July 26th, which I cannot wait for. Yeah, beautiful. I am so excited about this. It's going to mark the first time an opening ceremony is held outside of a usual stadium setting. Hmm, that's cool. I love that. Um, it'll also, Can you imagine? the security operation. Oh, no. I mean, I, anyway, the athletes are going to be paraded through the heart of the French capital on boats on the Seine. <laughs> and then all the spectators are going to be on the banks. Really? Isn't that cool? That's super cool. Yeah. Uh, 100,000 paying spectators, 220,000 free seats. Like, sit wherever your bum can sit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, in December, the French president said that the ceremony could be moved for security reasons if France is hit again oh. in the run-up by extremist attacks. So, yes. 
will certainly hope and pray that that does not happen. Read more about that at ABC News. And number four, John, happy to announce this. Originating as a stream in Potter County in north central PA, it journeys 325 miles through a small part of New York and then across six counties in western PA before joining the Mon in Pittsburgh at the Ohio River. It provides drinking water to more Mm. than a million people, serves as a habitat for hundreds of animal species, and that's the Allegheny River, Yay. which has been named PA's 2024 River of the Year. Excellent. By whom? By the Pennsylvania Department of Conservation and National Natural Resources and Pennsylvania Organization for Watersheds and Rivers. Outstanding. And that's your top four at four. Well, it, um, I did you the know river... that contest was going on? Uh, I did do not. You know that, did you know that the rivers were competing? No, but I know that this is the second time the Allegheny River has been named mm-hmm. the River of the Year. I wonder if they get any extra spiff. Like... Uh, that's a good question. Maybe they get a couple extra tablets thrown in, like for winning. Something, you know, know, a little protection on the EPA. They pulled just ahead of the Yawk. Okay, good. So Yawk came inside. Yawk's a very nice river as well. It's a nice river. Mm -hmm. Lovely. But I'm I'm happy for the Allegheny this year. A little more partial to the Allegheny. All right, do you like the Allegheny? Yeah, it's right down here. If you were going to boat uh, on the Mon or the Allegheny, what would you choose? Uh, Probably the Allegheny. Okay. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And what if I threw the Ohio in there? Uh, still the Allegheny. I think I would, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's perhaps they should have contacted us. We At least we would have voted the same direction. <laughs> exactly. All right. We're taking a quick break. When we do come back, we're going to talk about the book of Hebrews. That's straight ahead. You're listening to Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's the ride home here on Word FM. I've been reading the Bible for a long time, and uh, when I come up against a passage or someone brings up a passage that I really don't know, like I really don't know, I love that. And and the reason that I, maybe it points to the fact that I should be more well-read, that's probably the first thing. But the second thing is, it if you've never read the Bible, if you're listening to us right now and you think, why would anyone do that? All I can tell you is that it... It will always surprise you. There's so much there. The content is so rich Mm -hmm. and uh, the subject matter is so vast and the depth of what is available to us in just, you know, those thousands of pages. It's just it's incredible. So let that be an encouragement to those of you out there listening. I mean, Um, even biblical scholars, a lifetime and more of reading and study. I can't imagine what being a biblical scholar would be like, but I assume that that's probably true. Anyway, our next guest is going to talk about the 10th chapter of Hebrews. And, um, I, it's a, I, mean, I, I love the book of Hebrews, but I'm just not familiar with this passage, so I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, Josh Brown is with us. Josh is the pastor of Belfield Presbyterian Church in the Oakland neighborhood of Pittsburgh. Josh, welcome in. John, Kathy, thanks for having me back on once again. Always a pleasure, Josh. Okay, so do you? Um, how do you look? I mean, you're obviously much more well-read in the Bible than I am, but when you come across a passage you're not familiar with, I mean, do you get, I don't know, I get kind of excited about it. You're right, and you're going to keep finding them the more that you look. I mean, there there is enough there to spend, as you said, an entire lifetime studying. And, and even some of the ones that we think we may understand very well will usually have a little bit more going mm-hmm. on there than we sometimes get it at a first glance. So yeah. uh, it, it can be overwhelming because of that. It can be a little intimidating, uh, not knowing where to start or how to relate some of the parts together. In particular, how to relate some of the things to one of the great challenges people often have is, you know, how do I make sense of some of the stuff in the Old Testament, and how does it help me? Does it help me in any way understand something more about Jesus? At first, at first blush, a lot of people might say, well, no, it doesn't. They're really separate. 
And yet Scripture itself tells us that that's not the case. In fact, they are really there to point us to some deeper understandings of who Jesus is. And the passage that you mentioned in Hebrews, uh, there's, there's a couple times actually in that letter that the author talks about this idea of things being shadows of which Jesus Christ is the substance. Mm. And he uses that kind of imagery a couple times, which is, which is really, it's fascinating imagery, first of all. But it also gives us a really, really important tool for understanding some of the things in, in the Old Testament, but how also the Bible really does fit together as a whole, because that's what it is. It, it is one whole consistent story, one unfolding revelation of God's work and purposes in this world. Mm. It points us all to Jesus. Yeah. So if we do believe that this is one consistent whole story that uh, shows God's workings, and if we do believe that the focal point of it and all of it really kind of brings us to Jesus in some way or another, then we need to understand, well, how does it do that? I see. So, Josh, then you're in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Can you tell us uh, where you are? Well, Hebrews chapter 10 is, is one of the places there um, with, that the author mentions that, but a couple times he uses that same same kind of basic imagery. And the shadow substance one, it, it's meant to think of it like this. There are times where, um, you know, you, you've probably seen someone's shadow, and depending on the angle and the, the brightness of the sun and whatnot, you can sometimes recognize a person from their shadow. Yes. Maybe you see their silhouette, you know, yeah, I recognize that silhouette or that posture or that pose or, or whatever. It's possible to recognize somebody from their shadow while also knowing that the shadow is not them. It's not them. It, it's its own thing. We're not confusing the two or, or trying to coalesce the two, but it also does let us know who it is that's behind that. And there, there's a theological term for this, a uh, little more technical term that people sometimes use. The idea is called typology. Um, but if the, <laughs> if the, the term like that's not helpful, the, uh, the image that the author of Hebrews gives, I think, is one. He's saying that there are things in the Old Testament, there are people, there are institutions, there are events, which uh, they reveal something in and of themselves, but they're also meant to point us beyond themselves to Jesus. And they show us something about him, where he is the true substance of those things themselves. I love that idea of shadow and substance, um, because like you said, I think that's something that we can understand, right? Um, it's something that makes sense uh, in a in a realistic way to us, um, and that helps something that's so ancient, like the Old Testament. It, it, we need an example, I think, to make it applicable. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so there's there are lots of them, right? Let me give one that I think is maybe a pretty easy one to trace and gives a good model for how something like this works. So when God led the Israelites out of Egypt and into and on, they're on their journey to the Promised Land, and during the time that they're in the wilderness, he gives them this set of instructions you find in the second half of the book of Exodus to build the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. Now, the tabernacle was basically a portable temple. It would go with them, and wherever they camped and set up, they would, they would build that, and they would set that up right in the middle of the camp. And there's very, very detailed instructions about it, uh, what it should look like and the embroidery and the materials and all of this. But at its most basic level, the tabernacle was supposed to symbolize God's presence in the midst of his people. Uh, in the midst of his people, God is present on their journey to the land of promise. So at, at the simplest level, that's one of the things it's symbolizing. Now, within the tabernacle is a place where people could encounter God, where their prayers were offered up, where the sacrifices, all that. But it's saying, God, this is, this is a way of showing us that God is present in the midst of his people. 
when they got to uh, when they got to the Promised Land, when they got to Jerusalem, then they built a temple. A temple is more permanent version, but saying the same thing. This is God is present in the midst of His people. Uh, that is the great promise that we have of Scripture. So that that's something that's this image, that's this understanding that God's people had. When you get to the beginning of the Gospel of John, for example, and it's talking about Jesus, uh, very famously saying that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, and then most people know John 1.14, it says, And the Word took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's a fine translation, but it, it obscures what I think is a pretty important point. And it, the Greek word that John uses there for made his dwelling among us is literally the word tabernacled. Uh, it's literally that word. So he's saying the word took on flesh and tabernacled among us. So what that's saying is everything that the tabernacle and the temple was pointing to, this promise that one day God would dwell in the midst of his people, God himself would be fully present among them, that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The word tabernacled among us. This is Jesus, this is God himself in the person of Jesus, in the presence and in the midst of his people. So that's I, that, that's still a pretty big concept. I realize there's a lot there's a lot you can really plumb the depths of on something like that, but that's an that's an example of typology or mm-hmm. how a shadow is a real thing. It's its own thing, uh, but it also points to something deeper and truer that we find in Jesus. Yes. So a, a Jew hearing that passage or reading that passage, Josh, would know automatically, right, what 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 that was meant, right? Because people understood the tabernacle. So, of course, Jesus is close by in that tabernacle. I think so. Yeah. Well, they would have certainly ask, well, wait, why, why is it described that way? Why are you, what do you mean to say Jesus is tabernacling among us? It would certainly raise that question. And that image comes up also in the book of Revelation. In chapter 21, when it's talking about the new mm-hmm. creation, it says that God will dwell in the midst of his people. It's, they use this, it's the same verb. God will tabernacle in the midst of his people. Um, so, yeah, it, it certainly helps to connect some of these threads of Scripture and really show us how this really is all one story. The other one, which is very much related to that one, I'll just give one other example, because there are a lot, uh, is one that Jesus himself uses. When he's celebrating the Passover meal, Passover meal was this covenantal meal that God's people had uh, coming out of Egypt, the sacrifice of the lamb, the spreading of the blood on the doorposts. When Jesus was celebrating that, he, he said to his disciples, this is my body, this is my blood. He's saying that that was meant to point ahead to the sacrifice that I'm about to offer. Uh, so Jesus himself showed, that's another example there. Those things are real and true events in and of themselves, while also pointing beyond themselves to a deeper and truer reality in Christ. The Reverend Josh Brown's with us. He's from Belfield Presbyterian Church in the Oakland part of Pittsburgh. Josh, it, it just... It, it's so to me it's endlessly fascinating how connected the story of God is um from the very earliest moments to what you're talking about in Revelation 21 which is uh the very end of uh this age and the beginning of the next. Uh but what we miss when we don't think the Old Testament is important or how many Christians there are. I was just I was telling this story last week that I was with a group of people like people who are strong believers in Jesus and have been for a long time and have no absolutely no connection to the Old Testament. Never read it. Their church never talks about it. It's just, you know, Matthew to Revelation and that's it. And it's just that's such it's such a poverty of understanding. And you ignore it at your peril. Yeah. It, it is. In, in many ways, you're really only getting part of the story that way. You're, re- you're really not getting the whole thing, and you're not getting to see the way that God was working his purposes out across the course of history. Uh, you don't get to really 
catch the depth of the meaning of something like Galatians 4, 5, which says, you know, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Unless you understand, okay, is this something that, did people expect this? Had God promised that he would do it? Yes, he did. Well, what does it mean that that Jesus had to be born of a woman, born under the law? Well, you only understand that if you get sense of how these things had been developing and, and what the Old Testament background is for that. So you are only getting part of the story. And that, that's a reason that one of the very first heresies that the early church identified was came from a man named Marcion, who did entirely separate the Old and New Testaments. He, he, in fact, he went so far as to say, these are two different gods. These are, these are entirely different gods. This is an entirely different story. And that, that's a very extreme version of that. But the church very quickly said, no, that's entirely out of bounds. Um, and even though maybe we don't see quite that extreme version of it, it's it's there in some implicit ways, right? Even, even right when we give out new copies of New Testaments to people. Um, hey, that's great to give somebody a copy of Scripture, and can can the Lord use that? Absolutely. Uh, it's His living Word. It's it's sharper, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces, it heals. It's, it's God's Word. But you're also only giving them part of the story. Yes. Pastor Josh Brown talking about how Jesus is the substance of the Old Testament shadow and how that can change the way that we read and understand the Bible. Josh, always a pleasure. Talk to our audience. Tell us, please, about Belfield Presbyterian Church, Belfield Evangelical Presbyterian Church in the Oakland neighborhood. We are located right in the heart of Oakland. We're uh, on the University of Pittsburgh campus, essentially, kind of in the middle of all that, near to Carnegie Mellon and some of the other schools around here. Uh, But we have people that come from all over the city and outside of the city to be a part of that. We're a very intergenerational congregation. We we see a calling to care for this unique community of which we are a part, and yet we have people coming from all over. And um, there's a lot of opportunities to be involved in different ways. We have three services each Sunday. There's information on our website, which is belfield.org. Org, and um, there's there's always a place for you if you want to come and check things out and be a part of what's going on. Very nice. Josh, we always appreciate you stopping by to teach and preach. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you guys again soon. Our pleasure. Josh Brown, Belfield.org. You will know more information about that church. We'll take a quick break and come back. We're going to segue uh, from the Bible to Patty Melt. That's straight ahead here on the ride home. Earlier in today's program, we talked about the Allegheny River being named River of the Year. Yay! <laughs> For those of you that didn't even know that that competition was underway. Who knew? Anyway, we were talking about our favorite rivers, and uh, we both said that the Allegheny of the three, the top three, <laughs> were, was, was a favorite. The Allegheny, the Mon, and of course the Ohio River. And the good news is that we'll be on all three of those coming up for our Valentine cruise Friday, February 16th. It's a night out on all three rivers featuring a great dinner beautiful views of the city. It's mm-hmm. a wonderful thing to do in the winter. If you're one of those people like we were last year thinking the last thing I want to do is go out on the boat in the winter, it's awesome. Spectacular. It's so warm. It's so lovely in the boat and it's just we it's such a beautiful city that we have mm-hmm. to appreciate the, and live in. The really. jewels of the city is it sparkles in the nighttime. And if you're worried about the weather, uh, the weather, you know, relatively warm here. Yeah. And of course, the mm-hmm. 14th, the 16th is a, a little bit away. But don't wait until you go, okay, the weather's checked off my list here. We're good to go. Right. Make your reservation now at wordfm.com. Wordfm.com. You don't want to call anybody else or be involved with a, uh, anybody else. But wordfm.com to go there. You'll see the Valentine's. Times Dinner Cruise banner at the top of the page and join us there. All things considered, 
a beautiful night out and extremely inexpensive. Yes. Yeah. And you can bring your sweetheart. Mm -hmm. You can bring your dad. You Mm -hmm. can bring your brother, a friend, a group of people, whatever you want. Uh, Because Valentine's Day, the 14th, is amateur hour. (laughs) Yeah. But the 16th is for people who know what they're doing. People who are loving on people. That's right. Tickets are on sale now. Get yours at wordfm.com. Very nice. Okay. um, So you earlier said something about the patty melt. Oh, yeah. I don't have any connection to the patty melt. You're not a patty melt fan. Not even. uh, No. I wasn't even sure what was in a patty melt. That surprises me, really. Okay. Well, uh, there's an article in the the Times today. The patty melt is tired of hearing about your favorite burger. (laughs) I mean. (laughs) That's a very funny headline. I would say I'm a patty melt person. Okay. From like an early, early age. Because if you're a kid, any kid can make tuna fish. Yes. Right? Right. You can get out of the can, drain yeah. it. and Right. A little mayo. You're good to go. And then as you get older, you know, you add whatever. Mustard, onion, wh- whatever. You mm-hmm. just dress it up and make it, so, make it beautiful. Okay. And then the ultimate expression of tuna fish is the patty melt. The ultimate expression. It is. I'm telling you. And then you add cheese, your delightful, whatever the yeah. slice of that cheese is, and your favorite slice of bread or two, okay. open face, put it in the broiler for a hot patty melt. No connection to this. No. And I I, I, I prefer my tuna cold. So, really? So warm tuna is not necessarily... Hot tuna. It's just a, the, yeah. Okay. Is a patty melt exclusively tuna? Yes. Okay. Yes, I would say so. Lex, are you a fan? Uh, I like them, but every time you th- you say patty melt, I think of the Frisco melt from Steak and Shake, and that's my favorite. But what's that's, that? What's but a that's Frisco? Beef. Uh, oh, a Frisco. Oh, yeah. so it's the same idea? It's the same idea. It's just like a a pat like yeah, it's the same idea as like a patty melt. Really? But yours is tuna, and that one's beef. So I don't and think it's is the it same on. Thing. Bread or is it on a muffin? Yeah, it's like on an, bread. Okay, I have seen tuna melts. Now that we're talking about it, on yeah. English muffins. Yeah, sure, of course. Sure. Right. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, you could you could order a patty melt like at any diner, and it's always going to be different. Mm-hmm. But it's you know the essential core of of what it is a patty melt, okay. right? Um, I, I I don't know why it's it's not even second place. It's like ninety eighth right. place in comparison to the burger, right? And you, as a vegetarian from a vegetarian household, yeah. I would think that this would be like I know, because we core. eat a lot of tuna. Yeah. But I I mean, again, I think it's my bias against I, tuna steak hot. Tuna salad should never be hot. It doesn't have to be. But it's just a little... It's The only reason you put it in the broiler for me... Is so the cheese melts. Exactly. And just give it a little, you know, 30 seconds in the broiler or 20 seconds in the broiler. It's more than enough. I got to be honest. It sounds good to me. It's excellent. It is, really, like I'm, really I'm coming excellent. around even as we speak. I, I can't tell you enough how much I love a patty melt. I mean, the burger. And then you can put thing. some chips on the side. Whatever, a, a piece of a pickle, maybe some broccoli. Yeah, roasted green beans, something like that. I'm serious. This article about you know your your tuna melt is tired about hearing about your yeah, burger. Yeah, right. So so step it up and try a patty melt. Look, we're coming into Lent. Do you have to do? Would you have to make it? A mayonnaise thing. No. I think like anything with your tuna, right? Yeah. Your tuna is different than my tuna. Right. Right? So you do it how you want to do it. Huh. When you make tuna fish, do you make, do you eat tuna fish? Yeah. Of course. Are you doing mayo? Always. Okay. You know what I'm going to do? Hmm. I think I'm going to make a tuna melt for dinner. Excellent. I don't even know how, but I'm going to look at, I'm going to do it. How, like, there you go. It's coming up. <laughs> 
You heard it here on the ride home. Kathy's committing. That's right. so sick. Committing to the tuna, tuna oh, milk. No, I, I'm going to do it. All right, good. Do I'm two cans of tuna out. fish. You think? I think you need a you need a chunks. Okay. Right. All right. You and your hub, and yeah. then some leftover just right. because you need leftovers. Right. Okay. Jeez. Go tuna milk. question our next guest asks is, are you more empathetic than God? Ann Kennedy's with us. She's been a regular guest of our show over the many years, author of Nailed It, 365 sarcastic devotionals for angry and worn out people. She writes an almost daily substack, which is deep and always interesting. And welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. So, Tell me why the question is at the forefront of your mind. Are we more empathetic than God? Well, there's been a whole slew of uh, sort of Christian conversations. I think one of them has been about empathy, and others of them have been about compassion. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a really high value for us in our society. And I've just sort of, you know, that's what I do is I become annoyed with the way people are talking about things. <laughs> and so yes. I, I've i actually been thinking about it for several years, uh, mainly when our church began to go through the Gospel of John. And uh, I just want, began to wonder, you know, our sympathies and our, our uh, like our desires, the things that we think are important don't always align with what God is saying um, about himself, and because he is compassionate, and he does call us to to himself, uh, but sometimes I think our sympathies go a bit too far beyond what he would, what where his would go. That there's a possibility we could be overly empathetic? Well, I think, I mean, sometimes... I think, it's, of course, I think we're all probably overly empathetic towards ourselves. Yes. We, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, yes. we feel deep sympathy for ourselves mm-hmm. and our own suffering. And then uh, one thing that happens, I think, with empathy is that you, it's, it, people have written about this a little bit different than compassion, where you might want to sidle up to somebody who's sitting in a pit and, and, and pull them out of the pit because you have compassion for them. Empathy, I think, invites you to go sit in the pit with them for a while to more fully understand their problems. And then sometimes it's hard to dig out because you're mm. there in the pit with them. Yeah. And so um, in, in some cases, it can be helpful to have a little bit of a, a critical distance on suffering, your own certainly, but even sometimes other people's, which I think is really hard for us in our culture to accept. Yeah, because um, I think it, we, in light of the loss of other values that we used to have in Western culture, I think we have um, elevated compassion as maybe the highest good or empathy as the highest good. Um, and we've left behind, um, I don't know, the urging of one another onto good works. Um, and that seems to have fallen by the wayside. So I think you're... I think your example, your analogy of going to sit with somebody in the pit and then it's hard to dig both of you out. I think that has has a lot of resonance. I I know this because I've done it myself sometimes (laughs) or people have done it to me where they have seen me in pain and then they've tried to 
identify and understand my pain so completely that then it became theirs. And sometimes when I had moved on, they were still feeling angry on my behalf or mm-hmm. um, in some something that wasn't an issue for me anymore. They had they'd kind of conflated their sense of self with mine. And then I was I was like, well, what, why are you doing that? I'm fine now. And I think that happens over and over again, probably because of social media. We can we can easily imagine each other's pain, but sometimes people aren't feeling it as deeply as we expect or God is helping them in ways we don't see. And um, also, this is a really hard truth. Sometimes being able to endure another person's pain um, without reacting to them helps them out of it uh, more completely than if you, if you sort of get in and keep, you know, lighting the flame of the pain over and over again. Hmm. Well, that's powerful. Yeah. And that, and that kind of situation that can be dependent on a lot of factors. Do you think? Oh yeah, it's like I mean I think this requires a certain degree of Christian maturity that none of us would desire to develop. <laughs> it involves yet more pain, um, but yeah, it, it's a very it means knowing people for who they are and um, thinking about them in. Uh, uh, really biblical ways, I think, rather than deeply emotional ones, and uh, not relying on your own understanding, things like that, that are really biblical ways of having wisdom. And uh, so all those virtues that you said, it would have to really need to be recultivated. Um, But I just think thinking about this a little bit is a good idea. One thing I, I noticed that, you know, when we were going through the Gospel of John, some of us, me included, feel sorry for Judas sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think if you feel sorry for Judas, then you might want to stop and say, well, maybe maybe my feelings don't comport with God's, because in this scenario, mm-hmm. Jesus is the one who should have my um, greatest sympathy and affection. He went in the pit for me um, because I couldn't. Um, but he's the only true innocent victim that ever existed. And I think often he doesn't, we don't feel that about him. We feel that about people who aren't quite, you know, aren't on the cross um, in the way that he was. And so it's hard. It's a hard thing in this day. But I think it, it, it's been very fruitful for me to examine my own conscience and wonder um, who do I feel sorry for in this situation and why. Mm-hmm. And Kennedy's with us. We're talking about her, her Substack article, Are You More Empathetic Than God? And so, and in some ways, I mean, empathy, we think, is a, a personal one-on-one. But then you conflate it, uh, amplify it even further to think about, well, empathy as um, involved in in world affairs, presidential politics or war, and in some ways, of course, where we are right now, you know, with social and all that, you can look at that and, and, and say, well, are we, they, me included, are we good Christians in how we look at presidential candidates or politics or wars in Ukraine and Israel, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I, as I was writing, it made me think of the this very hard psalm where it says there's no one righteous, no, not one. Mm-hmm. And P- Paul picks that up in his epistle. And it's something that you can bite your teeth on and kind of, you know, break your teeth if you're not careful. <laughs> and um, 
I, I think the way the through line through very divisive issues is to remember that there are no innocent victims amongst us. We are all we, we don't deserve particular points of suffering, perhaps like, you know, if I get an illness that could come out of the blue and I may not have done anything at all to deserve mm-hmm. that illness. Sure. But in a generalized sense, I'm bad. I'm really a bad person. And so is everybody else. And so I can feel sympathy and empathy and sorrow for people, but we all have an opportunity to uh, discover that we can repent for our sins and Jesus will forgive us in an, in an unfair way because we deserve not to be with Jesus forever. So I, I just think that helps that helps me has helped me out of my pity for myself. And, and even on behalf of people, you know, I was feeling sorry for myself and others for the social media companies that are in many ways, deeply unjust and have taken over our lives, even when we didn't ask them to. Uh, and we didn't deserve that. But, you know, in some sense, we probably did because, you know, we we want the stuff that they're giving us. Um, we just want it without any of the consequences that yeah. attend it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. We fully engage with them. Mm-hmm. And Kennedy's with us. Uh, we're talking about her article that she wrote on her Substack. Are you more empathetic than God? And's the author of Nailed It: Three Hundred Sixty Five Sarcastic Devotionals for Angry and Worn Out People. Um, and something I've been thinking about lately is, uh, you know, I think that we're victims in this digital age of so much information that the uh, the horrors and the suffering of the world of people on the other side of the globe um, or people who are who have a Twitter account um, can become so overwhelming to us. Um, and so, you know, you read a tweet from somebody who's going through something truly awful and it just seems like there's not enough of me to go around. You know, there's not, I don't have enough empathy for all of the grief and sadness that there is in the world. And, you know, newsflash, I actually don't have enough empathy for all, for all of that. But the thing I've been thinking about kind of challenging myself lately is whenever I feel that way, which is pretty much every time I read the news in some way, shape or form, I can't help it is Mm -hmm. I'm challenging myself to imagine the goodness of God being good enough, being better than all of the sadness that I know. And so kind of entrusting God for his empathy, for his compassion, which is greater than mine, because I think what this digital world is trying to trick me into is the fact that if I'm not empathetic enough for everybody, then we're all sunk. Right. And I think what social media has done is made us think that our feelings of empathy are salvific for other people. Yeah, right. Right, like right, if right. we if we if we feel enough sorrow on behalf of somebody else, they might be saved yes. unto salvation. Right, and that that is leading many people into dark and and very disturbing places because our compassion, however warm it grows, can't save. Your feelings um, aren't are not the work of Jesus on the cross, and so you you can overfeel it for people in ways that actually make it hard for them to hear about Jesus because you've so deeply connected them to yourself. And I think the, the social media thing is a trick of the mind 
And it, it goes into many different corners of life, like in real life relationships, online ones. And um, it, it, it would be better. I love that. If you, I've, I've tried thinking of Jesus coming again and the, the blood rising up to the, the horse's bridles. Mm. And, then, and then all of it suddenly being put right in just one moment. I have no idea what that will look like. But God has the power to, to put everything in its proper place all at once. In, I can't even like scroll all the way through my feet. <laughs> right. How on earth would I be able to do that? <laughs> That's good. That's so powerful. Oh, it's a mystery, is it not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're just here for the uh, for the ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, exactly. Anne. Always, always good to have these talks with you. And you're such a fine writer. We were talking about this before we went. We to really air. were. I mean, you know, I, I read oh, your stuff regularly, you. Anne. It's true. And it's excellent. You know, and I've I've. I'm I'm a big reader and I have been my whole life, but you are just you you've become such a wonderful yeah. writer. Yeah, really, your, your depth and your clarity Thank are beautiful. You. And I don't say that I really don't say that lightly. Yeah. So listen, our listeners, where, where can they find you? Talk about that. Oh, well, thank you so much. That is so gracious of you to say. I do feel like I'm getting good and fluid as I get more irritated by everything. But I'm at <laughs> Patheos. I'm at um, Patheos on, I'm trying to be there on Monday. I'm on um, Stand Firm on Sundays, blogging about the Bible. And then the other days, I'm at my sub stack called Demotivations with Anne. And that's so that you will think that you do not have enough power to fix anything. <laughs> it's it's actually so screwed up, you'll just be overwhelmed by it. I surrender. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Anne. <laughs> Anne Kennedy, uh, as you hear, you can find her very different places. We would just uh, suggest you, you Google Anne Kennedy. And, of course, her work, which we've, uh, we've uh, talked about, nailed it. 365 sarcastic devotionals for angry and worn-out people. It's very funny, but also very deep. Anne Kennedy. Before our, our last guest joined us, we were talking about patty melts. And, and, and Kath has said uh, it's been forever since she's had a patty melt. I, I don't think I've had a patty melt since I was like 15. Now she's all in. I'm all in because, first of all, John was so flowery in, its, in his description of it. And then he forwarded me this article from today's New York Times called The Patty Melt is Tired of Hearing About Your Favorite Burger. Yeah. And the more I read this very funny article by Pete Wells, and it is very funny, I'm really getting sucked in. He's talking, John, about a patty melt that would be with meat in it, mm-hmm. like what Lex was talking about. Yeah. Where's that one you like, Lex? Is it Steak and Shake? Steak and Shake's Frisco Melt. Frisco okay. Melt. So it's a combo? Is it, a, is it meat and tuna or no, just meat? No, just beef. Just beef. Okay. Yeah. No, do the, do the traditional tuna melt. You think? I think. Yeah. Here we are. We are in the, on the cusp of Lent. I think the patty melt will guide me through the Lenten season. Okay, listen. This is what it's it, Okay, but this is what it says. <laughs> it says the patty melt has stood patiently in the shadow of the hamburger for yeah. so long that resistance to the ebb and flow of fashion seems to be baked into its being. Mm-hmm. It is resistant to change in general. Its classing components are few: bread, usually rye, yeah. cheese that melts well, mm-hmm. browned onion, mm-hmm. and of course, a beef patty. Get That's what it here. says here. That's New York Times, a beef patty. It says take one away or add something else and the thing you end up with may not be a patty melt. It's a burger. And I'm a burger. telling you. It... Okay, I'm doing a tuna melt then. Let me, okay. let me redefine okay. that. All right. Tuna melt. Okay, tuna melt. First and foremost. I mean, you know, you can do a patty melt, but that's just more meat. Right. We're trying to stay away exactly from Exactly, we okay? are. Tuna melt forever. I'm trying it tonight. 
Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Well, it's almost dinner time. That's a very good thing, is it not, right? Counting yeah, down. because my patty melt is just oh. a few hours away. Yeah. And see, a patty melt again. <laughs> again, you we're talking tuna melt. Right. We, we've realized that we were using some, yeah. some incorrect nomenclature. Right. It's not a beef patty. It's a tuna melt. Okay. Right? Ready a, patty in 15 me- a patty melt appear- apparently insinuates beef okay. as the substance. Right. But we're talking tuna, tuna melt. Tuna melt. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to do it tonight. Change I've got the tuna. Good. I've got a cou- you know accoutrement. Yeah, I've got like pickles. I've got chips. Will you do and mustard? I also have cheddar. I think I would do cheddar. But I think I'm going to do a little dive into the internet to see what kind of patty melt things are recommended a beef melt a no be- no i a mean tuna a, a tuna melt like okay. what, what i would add what oh, i sure, should add sure, to yeah. it i just want to see you know mm-hmm. what the new york times you know cookbook might say yeah, or like the high-end yeah, tuna melt. i think i might why not sure, like well, to see that if you're gonna do it you might as well you know i mean if i need an ingredient i could stop on the way home mm-hmm. and just if there's some like important injection a I dollop make. of um grape poupon i have grape poupon in go. the refrigerator you can't go wrong some I've, onion yep i have mm-hmm. that that's it listen speaking of onion yeah Earlier in the program, I mentioned how John and his wife are coming over with a group of people on Saturday evening yep. to my house. Some friends, that and is. I'm making pierogi. Now, the number when you see the amount of onion and butter really? that you have to have available for a thing like this, it is extreme. Excellent. It is a tremendous amount. Really? Yes. Is there sour cream? Always applesauce. Yes, oh, I'm and looking. salt. Yes, salt is the key. Salt is what. Dra- I mean. Yes, all those things are essential. You have to have applesauce. You have to have sour cream. But if you don't have a good salt, yeah. and when you do, man, mm, it mm, just all mm. comes together. Say no more. I'm going to be so there. Delicious. Thanks for inviting so delicious. So delicious. Anyway, okay. But let's get into some news of the day. Okay. UPS on uh, Tuesday of this week joined a small group of uh, pretty big companies pushing for a return to what a lot of people think was going to be left in the past forever. Hold on. A five-day work week in the office. Come on back. Now, right after that, and I'm reading, where am I reading from? Let me see. This is today's uh, Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, joining them, J.P. Morgan Chase, Boeing. Mm-hmm. They are among employers requiring full-time attendance for at least some segments of their workforces. Mm-hmm. It reflects a desire, according to the journal, among top execs to fully repopulate offices and return to a pre-pandemic way of working. Some C- CEOs say it's unfair for corporate employees to do their jobs remotely part of the time, while frontline staffers have to show up daily. Yeah, that's good. Now, we also know, and we've been reading about the contentious labor negotiations at UPS. Um, and 12,000 people. Exactly. Um, but it is still relatively uncommon for large employers to require corporate staff in person full time. 82% of Fortune 500 companies offer at least some remote work opportunity. Really? 82%. So that's a hard slog to try to get everybody on board, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the number of companies requiring full time attendance dropped to 38% at the end of 2023. Mm hmm. So that was its lowest point. I like it. 
I like being in the office. I know, you know, especially a younger generation goes, eh, you know, why don't I have to be there? Mm -hmm. It's good to be in the office. It It really is. It is good to be in the office. Mm -hmm. Now, let me say, um, this is uh, being frank about our, uh, you and I, our our personal experience here. But the part uh, of this article where it said some CEOs say it's unfair for corporate employees to do their jobs remotely part of the time, while frontline staffers have to show up daily, that was a hard thing at the station here. Yeah, because uh, the people who make the trains run on time, like Lexi, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, all the production staff, they all had to be here all during COVID. Yeah, Mike, right? Mike Adams had to mm-hmm. be here all during COVID. Um, Gary, our Kenny Woods, who does our morning show, mm-hmm. had to be here, and we did not have to be here. So mm-hmm. during COVID, we broadcasted from home. Uh, for a year and a half. Yeah, we were told to stay away. Yeah, we were told to stay away. Um, but when we came back, there was some acrimony between <laughs> the people who'd been here all the time and and us. And I get that because well, it was it was like different. Where have you guys allowances? Been? Yeah, where have you guys been? Yeah, I think is the best way to like. put it. Yeah, but we would have been here. We were you know allowed to be here, but they were like, "Don't come in here. Right. Stay Every, away." Right. They, because the the directive from the company was everybody who can work remotely, please work remotely. Right. Which is what we did. But there were some little hard feelings. But there. it is weird, so and we, it is weird. And you come back in, and you're like, "Hey, you guys." Do I work? Like, it just seems like you're not on the same team. So that was just for us for a year and a half. And of course, we've been back ever since. But for people who are still in that circumstance, you can imagine the weirdness, right, of coming back from home. And I I was talking to a friend of mine who works um, over on the West Coast. And uh, she was talking about the uh, company that she works for has several diversity and inclusion officers, Mm -hmm. right? DEI. Wait, but none of them work (laughs) <laughs> in the office. In the office. Of course. So all of the diversity inclusion equity. is, is in equity and inclusion, thank you, is being put out by somebody's emails. Oh yeah, sure. Right? What but a hero. But there's right exactly because mm-hmm. there there's zero inclusion since they work at yes. home. Do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. Good job, everybody. So anyway, I, I mean that can't that is a horrible work environment yes. to have to have people sending emails from home to direct you to do something that, you're not that they're doing. not they're not even around for. Right. I know it's weird. I think it's good for us to be in the office. I mean, I, I know if you've got kids, it's a boon for you. Your kids are home mm-hmm. with you. I mean, I don't know. Believe me, this chapter is not over. And, of course, it has changed society. It will continue to change society, especially as younger workers sort of expect to work from home. But it's good to be in here to rub shoulders with each other. I agree. You learn better. It's more of a team atmosphere. I think it's harder, but it's better. I agree. I harder, but better. Surveys have repeatedly shown, and I'm back to the journal here, that there is a disconnect between bosses and workers on return to office policies. Mm-hmm. Many workers want to retain the flexibility, while CEOs have indicated that they hope to see greater in-office attendance. In the continuing tug of war, says the journal, workers as of now, have largely won out yes. because office occupant, occupancy rates in 10 major U.S. cities have hovered around 50% for months. All right. We'll take a quick break. Come back. We're in studio today, of course, as always. We are in studio. We'll be right back with Dr. Kurt Thompson. We're going to talk about a wide place to stand. That's next. We're Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's the ride home here on Word FM. Kurt Thompson is back with us. He's a psychiatrist in private practice in Falls Church, Virginia. We're going to talk about the deepest place, suffering and the formation of hope. It's his newest work. Kurt, welcome back to the show. John and Kathy, it is always a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. 
Kurt, I'm eager to uh, hear you relate to our listeners the story of Cora, whom you tell in the third chapter of your book. Uh, tell us who she was and how she came to you at first. Right. Cora came to me, uh, and when she walked in the office, you would never guess the story that she would tell. Um, she was uh, attractive, smart, upwardly mobile. She was at age, by the time she was age 30, she had become a managing partner at the firm that she was part of. But her story was one of abject physical and emotional abuse. Her parents had been divorced when she was a young girl, and her father left her to her mother, who subjected her to the kind of violence that we can't make up, that we wouldn't imagine happening, that a mother would... Uh, act out toward her children, toward her daughter, multiple times throwing her down the steps, uh, would ridicule her for her appearance, would call her stupid, all these kinds of things. And if you were to have known this person's story when she was growing up in the middle of it, you would never have predicted the woman who walked into my office. The challenge for her was, of course, that uh, because she was smart and because she knew how to work hard, she was able to overcome a lot of obstacles that were the demons that were in her mind uh, that led to her, toward her getting an education, led to her uh, success in the, in the field that she was in. Um, the challenge was, of course, that she suddenly started to have panic attacks that were waking her up in the middle of the night. And, of course, for a person like many of our listeners who are really good at working hard at the hard things – um, she just figured there was something that we could do that she could work hard at and make them go away. And as it turns out, uh, she wasn't able to do that. She wasn't able to find the solution. And of course, some of our response to her panic attacks involved, you know, medication intervention because she wasn't sleeping well at night and it was making it more and more difficult for her to concentrate and work during the day. But more importantly, we began to, uh, and we, we invited her, I invited her to start to tell her story to me, at which point you come to discover, oh my goodness, this is a person who has spent most of her life working really hard to contain her trauma within her body. And now her body was finally saying, I'm no longer going to keep putting up with this. Mm. And... The beauty of this was that we began to see what for her, this panic, this embodied feature that, of course, she thought, oh, this is just a thing that's a problem with my brain, a problem with my mind. I can just think my way out of this. Kurt, if you could just give me a, a better way to understand my life and a few exercises for me to do, I'll never have this panic again. But when our trauma is housed literally in our neural networks and in our body – it's really difficult for us to just think our way out of this. And this is why her being introduced not only to her story, but her story as it was kind of being housed in her fight or flight mechanism, in the tightness of her jaw, the clenching of her fists, all those things that she was doing. In addition to that, though, the Bible really gives us a clear picture of how important our bodies are which is why in Paul's version of the text of Romans 5 that we're talking about as we're exploring this notion of suffering and hope, he talks about grace in which we stand. Mm -hmm. 
this notion, you know, Paul could have said this grace that we have, this grace that is a theological idea, but he uses the language of the body. And he's hearkening back even to the 31st Psalm, that God is a God that gives me a wide place to stand, that I can, my, I can, my feet are steady on the ground. I'm not tilting over one way or the other. I'm not fragile. I'm not that vulnerable in a way that is unhelpful. And we come to see that until and or unless we pay attention to what is going on in our bodies, we will be living with the mistake that we can just somehow bury all of our anxiety, all of our anger, all of our worry, and our body will have to swallow it until it starts to show up with its symptoms. But when it does, we see that not just the Bible, but the world of neuroscience gives us some indication of how we can enter into the healing process that necessarily involves our bodies. And Kurt, this is all of us, right? I mean, to some degree or another, you know, Cora is an extreme example, perhaps, but most of us walking around are the walking wounded. We contain all this within ourselves and our bodies. We do. And, and here's the thing, John. We, we know Cora to be an extreme example, but only because she's telling me in a consultation room to her friends, Cora looked like the average upwardly mobile person. She didn't look like she had problems. She was working really hard to keep them under wraps, as are most of us. So you are right that most of us are the walking wounded. And on occasion, we will find that the practices that we've entered into to try to keep ourselves, keep our, you know, our, our, our mouths and faces and heads above water, they work for a while. Because most of the time, what we are trying to do is to live life by ourselves. But we, when we, again, when we return first to the Bible to say it's not good for the man to be alone, when we return to the Bible and see that the man was made first as a, like God forms the man out of the mud of the earth, we are embodied and relational creatures in which if I'm going to flourish, not just not be symptomatic, but if I'm going to flourish, it's going to require that I'm paying attention to the connections I'm making with others. And in those connections, be curious about what am I sensing, imaging, and feeling in my very embodied presence in life? Most of us walk through the world very inattentive to my uptick in heart rate, mm -hmm. my clenched jaw, my yeah. clenched fists, my body language, all the messages that I'm sending both to others and to myself in ways that if Jesus were in the room, he would know, not because he's so magically able to just guess what we're thinking, but because he sees the things on our faces in the ways that we long to be seen, in the ways that we long to be able to see others as well. Dr. Kurt Thompson is with us. He's the author of the new book called The Deepest Place, Suffering and the Formation of Hope. Kurt, I, I read Cora's story with interest because I've suffered from uh, panic attacks in my life before. And they're, they're so extreme and so weird that you feel like, at least I felt like I just wanted them to be over, which is what Cora oh. wanted, right? You just want them to end. Um, oh, totally. Yeah. So if you can give them a, if you can give me a relaxation exercise or you can <laughs> give me a pill or you can send me to Bermuda or what, like whatever right. I, I could do to get rid of them. <laughs> what was hard for me to accept is the same thing that Cora found hard to accept, which is the fact that it's your panic attack is actually 
a quote unquote good thing because mm-hmm. it's your body communicating to you that something mm-hmm. has to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it's not as it's not the horror negative, the nightmare that I thought it was for many, many mm-hmm. months when I first started to have them. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. just it was a sign that I needed to mm-hmm. to 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 work on some things. Um, right. So in some way, it's like a good news, bad news thing. It, the good news mm-hmm. is that it's not the end of the world to have a panic attack, right. which kind of takes right. some of its power away when you realize that. Mm-hmm. And the second thing, mm-hmm. the kind of the bad news is that you're going to have to work on some stuff um, before you're going to be be able to get to a place where where your body says okay you know you're you're okay now um exactly and i guess for anyone listening to our show right now and you're having panic attacks i want to assure you that they don't have to last forever and you don't Mm -hmm. have to suffer Mm -hmm. like this forever um Mm -hmm. that there is help and i don't have them anymore and mm-hmm. that's a really uh, i mean that's it's such a blessing but it was three and a half years of weekly therapy um mm-hmm. for me that really mm-hmm. got at a lot of things i didn't even know were a problem kurt right right i, I never yeah. knew they were a problem but but listening to your body tell you that there is an issue is just mm-hmm. i don't know to me it's like a wonderful message that god allows us to kind of give ourselves Right. And I think this is like anything else. Uh, if we have a fever, if we have a cough, if we have a pain in my elbow, it is a signal. Now, I don't like my fever, my cough, my pain in my elbow. I don't like it. But the reality is that human beings pay attention to signals that are painful, that are distressing. I don't pay attention to signals that make me that, that, are, that are neutral. I pay attention to signals that are trying to get my attention, my challenge is that what I often want is for the signal to go away while I continue to do what I'm doing that's causing the signal in the first place. And the biggest problem for me then, especially when it comes to panic, is that I start to have this. And, you know, panic, it's not a thing where you like, you call up your friend and say, hey, guess what happened to me? I'm so excited to tell you this. Panic by its very nature, can be shaming. It can yeah. be terrifying. Yep. It's not a thing that I want to broadcast to right. people and say, I am so proud that I have panic attacks. What it will tend to do is to drive me further into isolation while mm-hmm. I just try to figure this out all by myself, which only ramps up the signal. Sure. Again, this, like anything else, is a God-built signal that tells us that mostly what we are longing for is connection. And Kathy, even as you're describing three and a half years of work, becoming connected to the people, the person that you're working with and more connected to your own story, eventually is what your body is looking for, greater connection in order for you to be released, to take that energy that you were burning at one time, having to house and contain all that anxiety, and now instead, Turn it toward the creation of beauty and goodness that was made for you before the foundation of the world. Mm. Fabulous. Well, that's a great way to say it. The deepest place, suffering in the formation of hope. Dr. Kurt Thompson. Kurt, it's always a pleasure. We've just barely scratched the surface, but uh, we look forward to your visit next month to go deeper into the deepest place. Right on. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be with you. Always the pleasure is ours. Dr. Kurt Thompson, the deepest place. Does this make sense? Uh, does what make sense? 
ketchup in squeeze bottles? Well, I sure like the glass bottle. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's iconic. It's iconic. But yeah, the squeezer, mm-hmm. that ketchup pops right out of there mm-hmm. in the exact amount you want. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it does make sense, but it kind of you, you lose a little bolt of tradition there, mm. right? Um, can you even buy the glass bottles anymore? Yes. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the uh, the squeeze bottle of Heinz. Okay. Yeah. Are you are you're saying it doesn't make any sense? I don't think it makes sense Get at all. Get out of here. Come I on. I don't like it even a little. You're still using the glass bottle? I sure am. Oh, we haven't used it forever. I know. Forever. Here's the thing. Uh, the gla- the plastic, yeah. it seems like it's going to be your friend. It right? is. It is it's, your friend. It's more lightweight. You mm-hmm. you know, it yeah. comes out quicker. You get all of it out of there. But I want to tell you that I hate the look of the cap. Clean it off. The cap looks nasty. No, no. No. Okay, you do have to clean it off, but often you don't clean it off, and then well, it looks nasty. It's on you, then. I don't like that. And I hate the sound it makes. <laughs> I hate well, that. Well, I don't like that. I don't know. I don't know how we decided that that sound was okay at the just table. What it is? It's just, just air. It, it's but it's annoying. It, no, I don't like <sighs> it. Does it still? It makes you. a terrible sound. Yeah, a, I don't like it. I you have, teenage, uh, you have boys, but they love it. I'm sure. But again, do we want to encourage? Like yeah. it shouldn't. It shouldn't be something that's in our heads. No, you're a purist because when, your family's H.J. Hines. And but here's the thing: one of my dad's jobs was yeah, working the with the with, no, it was the plastic bottle. Oh, it was. So he wouldn't be happy with so me saying this. So it's in your this. DNA. I, then. I just, I'm saying. Don't be distanced. I'm saying, plastic ketchup bottle doesn't make sense. Right, and I think it makes sense. Okay. All right, does this make sense? Kind of in the same vein as food. Okay. The egg roll. Oh, the Chinese egg roll? Oh, yes. Oh. We went out to dinner on Friday night. Listen, I think you can judge a Chinese restaurant by the quality of their egg roll. If it's a superior egg roll, you know you're in the right place. If it's a bad egg roll, move on. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. Because here's the thing. I tend to order the spring roll as opposed to the egg roll. Okay, well, I mean, similar, very similar. Yeah. Brother and sister. The egg roll is is crispier. Mm Mm-hmm. More of a mm-hmm. wrap, a yeah. right? More heft to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would liken the egg roll to uh, the cleanliness of a restaurant bathroom. Oh, so that just tells you a lot of things about yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to go with you on that. Makes I, sense. I think it does because, not because I'm a big egg roll fan, but because I'm oh. a big spring roll fan. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like we could be like partners in this. Exactly. Right, right. Yeah. So I'm fine with it. You're doing a spring roll. Are you doing mustard or the sweet and sour? Sweet and sour. Mm-hmm. I'm doing the mustard with the egg roll. It's the last day of January, which means we are headed into Valentine's Day. Weirdly, Valentine's Day and the first day of Lent, same day. Right. Mm -hmm. Ash Wednesday is February 14th. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How do you segue from Ash Wednesday into dating? (laughs) (laughs) Well, people are going to be doing both on the same day. That's the best way we can do it. We're happy to have Lisa Anderson back with us. Um, Lisa has been a friend of the show for a long time. She's the director of Boundless and Young Adults at Focus on the Family. She also hosts the Boundless Show weekly podcast and radio show. Lisa, welcome back. Hey, it's so good to be here. That's like kind of poetic. I didn't notice the Lent uh, yep. collab on that. Oh, so yeah. that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Excellent. so on that uh, that amateur day, right, Valentine's Day, uh, everyone's mm-hmm. going to be out to dinner with you know, little black marks on their head if they're of the uh, of that persuasion. But Lise, I mean, we'll talk about that. But you offered something else here, which I find uh, abhorrent in many ways. 
dating multiple people at the same time. I mean, seriously, uh, uh, Kath, you've done this? Hmm. You've done this? Yeah. You've dated multiple people at the same time? Well, I mean, I'm not doing it now, but I did. But at the time? Yeah. I really? mean, not serious. It's so confusing. It is co- it's confusing not... to date one person, let alone multiple there people. There's a lot of judgment in Sorry, the studio. It's a... <laughs> I mean, listen, all I'm saying is that I wasn't like it, I wasn't seriously dating any of them. I was just going out on dates with different people. <laughs> Lisa, please opine. <laughs> yeah, okay. I think there is a distinction. Although, I mean, are we even ready for this? It sounds like there's a lot of stuff that has to be cleared up behind the scenes. Yeah, there, we'll, we'll, anyway, we'll work it out with our therapist later. <laughs> work, work it out later. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I mean, you think, like, John, that's very funny that you have that reaction to it because what's hilarious is I was speaking to a huge group of young adults at some point and I remember like someone's grandpa was in the audience and during the Q&A he like raised his hand and he's like what is going on with all these young adults back in my day I dated three girls on a weekend what and and everyone (laughs) just about like didn't even know what to do with it they're just well first of all I think they were like how do you even get three dates on a weekend first of all they were just blown away but they just they thought that was so inappropriate and so it is John, maybe you're just younger, you know, you're you're coking, you know, coasting a younger vibe here as far as identifying with the Gen Zers. I mean, but it's it's true. I mean, when it used to be, and this is what I think Kathy's getting at, when it used to be that you walked down to the soda shop or you went to a movie or you whatever, you were just like free to go out with whomever until you like exchanged class rings or did something now we've made it into this big algorithm where you're practically married to someone before you start dating them. So I'm kind of on both sides of the fence of like where, how we need to do this appropriately so that, yeah, we're not just toxic players, but also we leave the freedom to actually date people until there's a commitment there. Okay. Okay. So I get it. So what mm-hmm. you're saying is if it's like a little, you know, touch and go, no pun intended there, or you're just going to hang out for a little bit and you call that a date, that's fine. Right. As opposed to like, you know, you're my sweetheart and I've also got other people on the line. Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, don't use trigger words with me like hanging out. That is very anathema to the intentional dater. Okay. So, sorry. <laughs> anyway, that said, um, yes. I mean, even to the point where if you're communicating with people you're dating with and you're saying, you know, just so you know, we're kind of, we're seeing other people or we're, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, good fits or find out who get to know people like in this construct, like maybe not this people from your same church. I mean, that could get awkward of like, who do I sit next to on Sunday? But, um, but, you know, just as long as that expectation is communicated, there are different levels of dating where you kind of set that expectation of this is just kind of, I'm getting to know people. I was asked out by this guy. I was asked out by that guy. And it is, it's not like, you know, it's not as lame and casual as, Oh no, we're just friends. We're hanging out. But it is not also, I would call you my boyfriend or my girlfriend. So, again, it's about that communication of expectation, I think, to begin with. Excellent. Well, you do bring up a good point that, um, you know, a lot of people who are dating somebody from church, so to speak, I mean, a lot of churches aren't, you know, huge numbers of people. And so that can get awkward, 
right? Yeah. When you're yeah. when you've dated different people, um, aisle three and aisle ten. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, or or get this: like if you're on dating apps and you get matched with people who are in your own church, mm. and you're like, uh, why didn't you just ask me out in person? Clearly, we're uh. matched up here. So that's all weird. And then you just you know then these guys are just ignoring you because they never wanted to ask you out in the first place. Oh. So that's just, I mean, it can get really muddy, which is why I think we have to all have a little bit of humor around it of like, how is this going down? But that there, you have a good point, Kathy, because I think that the problem with this and what, what drives singles so crazy is that we've put so much pressure on the process of dating yeah, to the point, really you know, have. like, yeah. like what I'm saying is, you know, you can go all the way back. I mean, you could probably go back further, but just go back as far as purity culture and the nineties mm-hmm. and all of that. I mean, it was like, you better not be seen with someone unless you've stated some kind of intentions and you've met their parents and all this. Well, as a result, no one dated because it wasn't like a thing like that could be casual and just getting to know the other person. And so, I mean, I, I have friends who like on the first date with a guy gave him like three personality quizzes to fill out to find <laughs> out like if they were compatible. And I'm just like, no guy wants to go through that gauntlet. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's where we have to have a measure of like the whole point is exploration of is this person even someone I enjoy are they someone that shares my values are they then eventually you need to cut out the clutter and start focusing on one person and saying yeah you know let's see if there's something here um, but again this this just job application of dating and making it some big old thing is absolutely frightening for many I'm into that. Lisa Anderson is with us. She's the director of Boundless and Young Adults at Focus on the Family. She hosts the Boundless Show, the weekly podcast and radio show. Okay, Lisa, so the other side of the coin then, um, as opposed to multiple people you're dating, is Valentine's Day as a single and how that impacts people, whether you're dating someone or you're alone on Valentine's Day. Yeah. Well, and this is also where it gets super tricky and potentially offensive because we are bombarded. I mean, I always tell singles, if there's any time you need to take a social media break, you know, and you probably did it hopefully for Christmas, maybe you did it for New Year's because those are just... Not, you know, in your face as far as engagements and all that, you know, take a break around Valentine's Day, because if you don't want that script running past you, just you need to avoid it because it's going to be people are going out, they're going to be throwing down money, they're going to be getting engaged. And if it's not your if you're not in a good spot right now, you need to do what you can to mitigate that. That said, I mean, this whole idea, it always cracks me up when people get all like, well, Valentine's Day. I'm like, do married people like Valentine's Day? I mean, who? we always <laughs> act like it's singles that hate it. Right. I don't know married people that want to go out on Valentine's Day either. Yeah. So maybe if we just collectively had some chill around it and we're like, okay, let's just all agree that no one wants to drop $400 on a dinner and go out, you know, fight for tickets to some show or something. Um, I think that would help us all. But that said... I think that it's very good to be sensitive to singles who are in a bad spot. I mean, you think of um, the first of the year is a time when many single adults will decide, like, this year is going to be better. This year I'm going to date better. I'm going to date more. I'm going to find someone. I'm going to. And and now that we're in February, you know, it's like, okay, maybe that hasn't happened yet or maybe. And there's discouragement around it. And so it's just like. Again, the pressure and the import of the day to be judged by whether or not you are wanted or you're selected or you're in a pair, a couple, it's hard. And we just have to be sensitive to those who are around and and kind of walking through that.
Mm-hmm. Lisa Anderson's with us. Uh, Lisa talks to us about dating and singleness and all sorts of things related to that. She's the director of Boundless and Young Adults at Focus on the Family. Okay, Lisa. Um, so. What about, you know, Galentine's Day, which, of course, Leslie Nope made famous from Parks and Rec. Um, <laughs> Galentine's Day, yeah. the perfect, I believe Galentine's Day is February 13th when mm-hmm. girls go out and celebrate um, with yeah. their friends. Uh, you know, we laugh about that. I think it's an awesome idea. Um, is this something that you have observed in your life? I absolutely love it. I mean, I am all for it. I'm for, you know, I, I'm not necessarily for weird gaggles of co-ed friends, like <laughs> hanging out because I'm like, okay. I mean, I, of course, I can't be one to talk because I'm the one that was part of a group of women that actually had to collectively break up with a group of guys from non-relationships we were in with them. So that's a whole other segment <laughs> we're going to have to go into in the future. That's complex. But, um, but oh, as God. far as like just friends hanging out and having fun, and doing something and being like, you know, hello, Taylor Swift does not have the corner on besties and girl power and being friends and being like, okay, and affirming of one another. So I think that's a great thing to do. Guys, you can come up with your version of that, the you know, bromance and all this kind of stuff that works out too. But um, I think it's very encouraging and empowering to have plans to have something like that. I also am a big fan of, you know, again, all you marrieds that hate Valentine's Day, but just like hanging around people, maybe have a dinner and a game night or something and invite some of your single friends and mix it up multi-generationally, age and stage, all that kind of stuff. And just make it a fun night where no one feels like they're left out or that they're pressured or whatever. So I think there are a lot of creative ways that we can kind of turn Valentine's Day on its ear. That's good. That's really good. I mean, the bottom line is you don't, you don't want to, like, feel bad. You don't want to shame somebody, but you want to gather with those that you love, right? Regardless of whether you're coupled up or not. Or, I mean, use it as this is going to sound, I'm not totally trying to Jesus juke your conversation here, okay? But this is going to be, I'm super spiritual, and so it just comes to me naturally. <laughs> good. But here's the deal. Like, use it to reach out and look at other people that might be in a really bad spot or just are lonely or whatever. So one thing I did for years, and now, you know, case in point, they're with Jesus now. I invited widows from my church over to my place and did a party. I mean, I am talking about like 90-year-olds. I'm talking about the oldsters that didn't, like, we had to go pick them up. Um, You know, they would have been shut-ins had we not enfolded them, and this was a couple friends and myself, enfolded them into a Valentine's slash Valentine's party that focused on them and honored them. And we would watch a, you know, a chick flick and we would have ice cream sundaes and do dinner and maybe play a game and reminisce and get their stories of dating back in the thirties and forties. And it was just awesome. And I mean, we younger women learn from them, Mm -hmm. vice versa. And we just get to say, you still matter. And it's not about like, I mean, they're just all widows and they just love telling their stories. And that's again, just an awesome way to bless others. Yeah, that's excellent. That's super. Boy, we always love talking to you, Lisa, because you give us all sorts of great ideas and perspectives. <laughs> oh, well, thank you Plus so much. I mean, it is fun. And thanks for, you know, caring about us single adults oh my and, and young women and stuff like that. It's super fun. Thanks for caring about us, people who are married. You got it going on. That's Lisa. right. You that's really Lisa Anderson. You can check her out. She hosts The Boundless Show, weekly podcast and radio show.
Well, here's an odd story. Pennsylvania's dogs are some of the most overweight in the country. <laughs> According to a survey conducted by veterinarians.org, mm-hmm. a veterinarian-informed information group on pet issues, the study found that Pennsylvania dogs carry over 18 excess pounds Whoa, on average. that's a lot. Yep. The plumpest, be- ble- uh, the plumpest breeds include bulldogs, beagles, pugs, chihuahuas, pomeranians, maltese, and yorkies. Mm. Uh, Pennsylvania has been dubbed the um, the snack food capital of the world. So, really? Yes. So we're also apparently spoiling our pets with delicious treats. Uh, in the United States, the rate of pet obesity has steadily increased over the past 20 years, reaching 59% of dogs and 61% of cats. Yeah. Locally, veterinarian professionals say they see many obese pets, often with health problems related to their excess weight. Um, Matthew Putchat is a veterinary nurse, was inspired to start her first pet weight program after the death of a family friend's 34-pound cat who was only four years old and had to be put down because of issues related to the pet's obesity. Oh, Mm -hmm. my goodness. Yeah. So um, here's a story. Uh, A veterinarian uh, in uh, Pittsburgh said that a young bachelor swore that he only fed his uh, very overweight dog two cups of dog food a day. The vet said, well, that's not possible. Your your dog is too big for that. It turned out that the owner was feeding his dog two cupfuls of two big red Solo cups a day. (laughs) That's what the bachelor thought was a cup. So they made an adjustment to a real cup. Okay, and um, and then things were better. So feed your pet less, uh, follow the expected guidelines. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do have an obese cat. Do you? Yeah, because you can't. You're just Look, loving them. And here's the thing. Yes, and I am. I don't. Treats are not a, a big thing in our house. But but he just very much likes his food, mm-hmm. and also likes his sister's food. Right. And he, if I let him outside, he'd burn off all of his calories. But he wants. To, you know what I mean. I don't let right. him outside, but he would eat it up out there. He'd and kill he would, all the birds. He would terrorize every yeah. small animal within a half mile radius. I know him. Right. I know him. Our cats stand by their food bowl like morning, noon, and night, like they're emaciated. <laughs> Meanwhile, they're living a pretty good life. Right, they are. Okay, going back to dogs for a minute. Um, U.S. News & World Report, a story that just came out this week, uh, the most popular dog breeds in the U.S. And then after this, I'm going to tell you the most popular dog breeds in each state. Oh. Um, obviously not all 50. But I will tell you the top 10 in the nation. Okay. Um, are you ready? Number 10, 10 yeah. Black Lab. Oh, lovely. Nine, a pit bull. Hmm. I'm surprised that made it in the top 10. No, I'm not. Number eight, American Pitbull Terrier. Uh-huh. Uh, seven, Yorkshire Terrier. Hmm. Six, Golden Doodle. Yeah. Five, Shih Tzu. Excuse me. Four, German Shepherd. Lovely. Three, Golden. Mm-hmm. Two, French Bulldog. Mm-hmm. Number one, Chihuahua. <laughs> Aren't they ridiculous? They are. And I'm just surprised that that's the top dog is a chihuahua. chihuahua. Well, they're little pocket dogs. Right? They are pocket they dogs. They travel well. But boy, they have an attitude. And they have that yappy, mm-hmm. I just can't yeah. stand it. We lived, when we were growing up, we lived down the street from somebody who had a pack of chihuahuas, like six or seven. So anytime we take our dog for a walk, that pack would come upon that dog and, you know, he goes, get out of here. Go, go. Choo, choo. 
those chihuahuas. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Okay, you want to go some dog breeds by state? What's the uh, Pennsylvania dog? Uh, so it's one of those wait, that I just mentioned. But no, like, mixed dogs? Mm-hmm. You're talking, really? Well, like, this is the most popular dog breed. Because I would imagine the most popular, popular one dogs. Popular one is mutt. Yeah. Is mutt. Like our dogs. You're it's probably right. Yeah. You're probably right. Okay, so it's one of those that I just mentioned. Yeah. In the top 10. What do you think that would be for Pennsylvania? Um, a golden. That's exactly what I guessed, Mm -hmm. but it's a German Shepherd. Really? Mm -hmm. The German Shepherd is the most popular dog in Pennsylvania. uh, My brother had one. There are a lot of wide open spaces in Pennsylvania. Yeah, sure. You know what I mean? They're wonderful dogs. I think they're they're, so beautiful and so smart. You mean German Shepherds? German Shepherds. As long as they're not inbred. Right? right, and and then they become violent and unpredictable. Right, and but then you get dysplasia I, in their hips. I too. know, and that makes me really mm-hmm, sad. Mm-hmm. But if you like a good a good German Shepherd, oh, my oh. brother had one for years. Was a fabulous. His name was Caesar. Oh. He was so excellent, super smart. I mean, just right by your side. Yeah, really, really beautiful. I have a real deep affection for the German mm-hmm, Shepherd. Mm-hmm, I just mm-hmm. do. I just I love their eyes. So beautiful. I love, just they're just really really beautiful. Okay, give me some more. Okay, uh, so let's look at New York State. Mm-hmm. Now you know that New York State also has a lot of New York City in it. Oh sure. As far as dog owners, so a Pomeranian. Mm, uh, it would be the Shih Tzu. Oh, of course. Which is a little bit yeah. of an embarrassing choice for your state. Well, you know, again, a little pocket dog. They're cute and furry, right? I think it's weird. Never had one, but okay. uh, I, I mean, think it's fine. You can't diss somebody's choice of the, the dog, no, you're right? right? You're right. right. Not at all. They like their dog. Um, Love their dog. So let's go up into Maine. Mm-hmm. Maine and also Vermont, Connecticut, New Hampshire. Massachusetts and not Rhode Island, but all of the New England states except for Rhode Island have the same dog really? as their favorite, and it is the wow. hold on the so, golden retriever. Uh huh. Uh huh. The golden retriever is king. All oh. up in there. How about a hound? Uh, there are no hounds. Really? There are no hounds here. Mm. I do want to say that Rhode Island uh, comes in with the Shih Tzu. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you look at a state like Texas. Yeah. I'm thinking Black Lab. In Texas. Yep. So how can it be Chihuahua? Chihuahua again. In Texas. Really? More states have Chihuahua than any of and anything else. Again. Like, like Washington and Oregon have Chihuahua. They travel well, right? They must. But everybody travel? I guess that's the only thing to consider with your dog. The Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.